Are you out there doing your best to get on with life? Because, as you already know, it's what you make of your life that really counts. And sometimes having a few shortcuts to help you on your way can be very useful. The NLP Matters podcast might just be the toolbox you need to focus your attention, your effort, your drive onto what really does make the difference. Built on the foundation of neuro-linguistic programming, the NLP Matters podcast offers proven recipes you can use to create and sustain your life your way. G'day and welcome to the NLP Matters podcast. I'm your host, Joe Clark. As we continue our exploration of the workings of the human mind, we can see why learning the NLP model of communication can assist us to apply our knowledge to create change, growth, and new behaviours. Today, we'll begin to look at our unconscious filters, which sift through the incoming sensory data as we experience it, so we're continually constructing our reality and our relationships to others. Over the past few episodes, We've been talking about the ways in which our senses and our mind combine to construct our version of reality. We explored our pre-programmed strategies of deleting, distorting and generalising what we perceive in order to manage, sort and manipulate the tremendous amount of sensory information available to us. And we're deleting, distorting and generalising unconsciously until we get our 130 or so bits, which in turn we chunk into seven plus or minus two chunks. Using these processes makes us ultra-efficient at managing information, predicting and learning from our environment. But how do we decide which bits of information to delete and which bits to focus on? And how do we decide what kinds of distortions to make? And also, how do we decide which categories to organise information into? So what sort of generalizations should we be making? I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in a completely dark room with a torch that has a narrow beam. You can only shine the light on a small part of that room at any given moment. What you experience in the room is totally dependent on where you shine your torch. Now remember, there are two million bits of information we can choose from. So, where do we shine our torch? Obviously, it's not just a matter of shining the torch randomly, because then we'd experience total chaos. Rather, we have a number of unconscious filters that guide our focus to ensure we're shining a light on the areas that are important to us. For example, when we're in a crowd and hear our own name, The sound of our own name stands out above the background noise because it's important to us. Similarly, if we decided to buy a red car, suddenly we will notice red cars everywhere. And, as all the women who've had children know, when you are pregnant, suddenly you'll notice all the other pregnant women or parents with new babies. This adjustment in focus is because our unconscious filters are bringing into our awareness things that are now significant or important to us in some way. 
So let's take a deeper dive into what's known in NLP as our internal unconscious filters. These filters are critical in determining what information is selected and how we use it. Because we use these filters all the time, we have patterns of perception. Certain things get more prominence over others. Our attention is drawn to them. And these relatively stable patterns of perception then reinforce our own map of the world. In other words, we all tend to notice things that continue to make us right about what we already know, think, value and believe. In the NLP model of communication, there are seven unconscious filters that are key to how we as humans select the information or data we focus on in our external environment. First, we have the filter of time, space, matter and energy. That's all in one filter. Second is the filter of language. Then we have our memories. Fourth is our decisions. Fifth are what we call in NLP meta-programs. The sixth is a filter for our values and beliefs. And finally, we have a filter for our attitudes. As I've said, each of these filters operates unconsciously. They're just continually running in the background without any conscious awareness. In this episode, we'll explore how the first three filters, time, space, matter and energy, language and our memories, impact our perception and the construction of our map of reality. And then over the next couple of episodes, we'll examine the impact of the remaining filters. The first filter we'll explore is the filter of time, space, matter and energy. Now, whilst it may sound like we're talking about four distinct filters, these are linked because they are the fundamental components of how we perceive, interpret, relate to and make meaning of the external reality of our environment. The when, where, what and how of experiences and our perception of these aspects of our external world has a profound impact on our map of reality. We know that time is a constant. It doesn't change from person to person, nor does space or matter, right? An hour to me is the same as an hour to you. In fact, we can objectively measure it to prove it is the same. Similarly with space, we can measure distance, volume and other characteristics of space as well. And matter is perhaps the most constant of all. If we're both sitting at a table, it's the same table for both of us, right? Well, at the simplest level, these consistencies are indeed facts. Yet, we've all had times when our lived experience confronts these facts. For many of us, as we get older, our sense is that time gets shorter or perhaps faster. Whilst as a young child, a year takes forever, as an older adult, a year is over in the blink of an eye. Our subjective reality is vastly different to the objective facts we know and accept to be true. And it's not only our age that impacts our perception of time. It might also come as a surprise to you to discover that different perceptions of time exist both individually and culturally. 
In Western cultures, we tend to see time as linear, running in a straight line from the past through the present and into the future. Western cultures also tend to see time as being in short supply. We talk about running out of time and we divide it up into ever smaller and smaller bits. Years, months, days, hours, seconds, milliseconds, nanoseconds, in our effort to keep track of time. Yet, in some cultures, the concept of time is cyclical, and their chunks of time are bigger. This shift in perspective has a profound impact on what bits of information we notice, what is important, and what is not in our environment. Historically in Australia, Early European farmers struggled because they perceived time through the lens of four seasons, a filter that they brought with them from Europe. Using this perception, they deleted, distorted and generalised local weather variations in order to find their pre-existing European notion of four seasons, winter, spring, summer and autumn. They followed the patterns of farming that matched the four-season model, which meant they often struggled with growing crops because they failed to come to terms with the local climate variations. Even something as basic as reliably predicting when the rains might come became virtually impossible. In contrast, the First Nations people, applying their local wisdom, knew the time for rain, growth and dryness in their environment and they knew it was in fact six seasons, not four. Their time filter for seasons was adapted based on experience and observation rather than on the application of another model that had been developed to suit another climate. We can discover other examples of cultural differences in the perception of time when we travel. I remember visiting Alaska, a beautiful wilderness state in the U.S., where our guides were continually reminding us that everything in Alaska happens on Alaskan time. And in case you're wondering, Alaskan time was not rushed. I remember one morning, as the tour group waited for breakfast to be prepared and served, that one group of travellers were becoming very impatient and expressing their displeasure loudly. As a result, they were escorted out of the restaurant. We were then all reminded, in Alaska, you get fed when you get fed, and there ain't no other place to go, so you best let us get on with the cooking. The food, when it did arrive on Alaskan time, was delicious, and each of us ate it with the wisdom of appreciating Alaskan time in a whole new way. Perception of time has played a big role in developing awareness of changes to climate. For many years, there have been arguments about whether changing patterns of climate are or are not normal when viewed through the perspective of time that the planet has actually existed. If growing carbon dioxide levels and warming climate was perceived as part of the normal fluctuations of the planet, rather than as a disturbance to the climactic patterns, then it was not necessary to take steps to mitigate the risk that climate change posed to the future of humanity, or so the argument went. In Australia, as we continue to confront catastrophic bushfires, then flooding, then drought, we hear media reports about 
once in a hundred year events. As though these events are still 100 years apart, even when they are repeated with much greater frequency now. Reporting them using the old time frames has led to people mistakenly rebuilding homes only to be inundated with floods again within two to three years. In 2022, there was one township that had been flooded three times in that one year. Now, it's true that in the past, insurance companies and land surveyors did create estimates of the risk of events such as floods based on a variety of timescales. However, these tools become useless and dangerously misleading if they fail to adjust to reflect the changing reality of climate on our planet. Now, as well as these bigger picture variations in our perception of time, there are also individual differences that we're all familiar with. For instance, I might think that a project with a deadline next month is a very high priority as it's due soon. This perception of soon then affects what I notice in the environment. It is more likely that I'll notice things that confirm my perception. Things like how full my diary is, when I'll be able to block out time to complete the project, and I will push back on requests and demands that others make of me so that I can meet my deadline. But a colleague might perceive the deadline of next month as being in the distant future. With this perception, they are unlikely to notice things that will remind them to schedule time and get organised. They'll also be unlikely to place limits on the demands others make of them and will continue to take on new activities and projects. Two people, same project, with different perceptions of time. And for some of us, even just hearing about these two different responses to a theoretical deadline may create a sense of urgency and desire to explain how important it is to block out time and ensure the deadline can be met. Our perception of space has a similar impact on how we filter information. Some countries are densely populated. The urban area of Tokyo, Japan, has a population density of approximately 4,700 people per square kilometre. The urban area of Jakarta in Indonesia has a population density of approximately 9,900 people per square kilometre. And the urban area of Jakarta in Indonesia has a population density of approximately 9,900 people per square kilometre. The urban area of Delhi in India has an approximate population density of 14,300 people per square kilometre. These urban centres accommodate more people than the whole population of Australia, a country with a population density of 3.3 people per square kilometre. Even in our biggest city, Melbourne, Victoria, the population density is only 453 people per square kilometre. As you can imagine, when people from densely populated countries come to Australia, they're very aware of the difference in space. And then if they travel by car across the country, they're amazed at the wide open spaces and the way Australians like to spread out. 
A number of years ago, as part of a Rotary International Exchange, we hosted a principal visiting from a school in San Paulo, Brazil. We took him to our local beach, where he was astonished that there were kilometres of empty beaches. He said, in Brazil at the beach, you can barely pick your way across the sand to the water without stepping on people on the way, an experience that was equally unimaginable to us. Personal space gives another powerful example of how our perceptions of space and the meaning we give it impacts our map of the world. In spacious Australia, we quite like a large amount of personal space. This means that when we're in a confined space or someone gets physically close, it feels as though our space has been invaded. Throughout the COVID pandemic, keeping social distance of 1.5 metres from others was not a difficult thing to achieve, as most of us unconsciously maintained a personal distance of at least one metre already. There were some changes, such as the addition of more trains, trams and buses to enable better social distancing on public transport, and working from home became the new normal. In many countries, the concept of personal space is odd. It is common to be in close proximity and often even touching others on trains, buses, bustling streets and markets. The experience of someone getting in our face where we notice there isn't enough space between us and then the meaning we give it varies greatly depending on the context and our perspective of how much space is enough. As with time and space, there are specific properties in addition to the concept of constancy that we perceive as belonging to matter. When we talk about matter, we're talking about objects or things which are perceived to remain the same over time and space. A table is a table in the morning and the evening. In the dining room or on the deck, it remains a table. Living beings are perceived as matter. They have an identity that we expect to remain reasonably constant. We can measure matter. It has weight, size, texture, location, and many other characteristics that can be used to define it. Our perception of an object or thing is that it has a distinct boundary that it exists within. For example, the table has edges, a top, a bottom. It exists within space. But we can also clearly identify what is table and what is not table. In English, we use nouns to label matter. The cat, the door, a chair, etc. Matter is generally perceived as solid, reliable, predictable and stable. In contrast, we see energy as moving, fluctuating, flowing and transient. How we perceive matter and energy is critical to what information we filter in and out from our environment. We know energy can and does change, so in that sense it's less predictable and reliable than matter. Doing things takes energy. Anytime we use a process, energy is required. In English we use verbs to label actions and processes. We are doing it, acting it, following it. Eastern cultures tend to use notions of energy to interpret and understand their environment much more than Western cultures. One of the core concepts of traditional Chinese culture, for example, 
is that of chi, which is an active part of all living things, and where human health is an expression of the flow and balance of chi energy in the body. In Western culture, the tendency is more towards transforming energy and processes into matter or objects. For example, with emotions, rather than seeing them as transient states that start then end, we turn them into matter. This also means we fail to acknowledge that in order for these states to happen, we must activate a whole series of biological, physiological and psychological changes. In other words, we need to do things to experience emotional states. So even though emotions are physical and mental processes that pass through us, that is, feelings like depressed or sad or happy, is something that happens, it's not a thing, we sometimes turn them into objects, happiness, anxiety, hunger, relaxation, fear, depression, and so on. And the real kicker about this is that once we turn something we do into something we have, we change it from something that fluctuates and changes into something that is constant and relatively permanent. This shift alone has a profound impact on our perception of the reality of feeling different emotional states. They now become solid and unchanging. Focusing on this shift in language, transforming processes into nouns, is a great segue into exploring the profound impact the second of our filters, language, has on our map of the world. Because we code the concepts that we use to filter experience, concepts like time, matter, space, energy in language, even our grammar reveals a great deal about how we construct our reality. For example, we use nouns to conceptualize things, objects, matter, and we use verbs to think about things we do or things that happen, stuff that has energy. When we transform processes or verbs into objects or nouns using language, we are doing a process called nominalizing. Let's use the example that I referred to before about emotions. Imagine you're feeling anxious. We can talk about you feeling anxious and how you do that as a process. And because it's something you're doing, then it must be something you started doing And we all know that if you can start something, it's possible you can also stop doing it. In contrast, if you say, I have anxiety, in much the same way as you say, I have brown eyes, then it's an object. And as an object, it's constant over both space and time, which pretty much means you're stuck with it. The language code we use to describe our experiences reveals what we'll focus on, what we will delete, distort and generalise. If an emotion is perceived as matter, we will delete, distort and generalise information to match our concept. Matter is constant over space and time, so changing our state of anxiety just got a whole lot harder. Language is also important because it enables communication. If someone speaks a language we understand, we'll pay attention to them and understand their communication more than if they're speaking a language we've never learned. 
When we cannot understand a language, we will either try to make out familiar words or we may tune out and give up listening. Many of us may have had this experience ourselves when travelling overseas, but what most people don't realise is that this tune-out strategy occurs even when language differences are fairly subtle. For example, even when people have different styles of speaking, some fast, some slow, the variation or lack thereof in tonality, the vocabulary that's used, the volume and the rhythm of speech can all impact what we delete, distort and generalise in conversations. The language filter is not just about spoken or written language, however. It encompasses a much broader definition of language, including signs, symbols, art, music, mathematics, physiology. In fact, anything that conveys meaning can be categorised as language. Sometimes we can totally overlook language that is happening right underneath our own noses. I often think about the signs and symbols we use for traffic control. If you've never driven a car, it's likely that many of those signs and symbols exist outside of your awareness. They're effectively deleted from your experience of reality. For drivers, however, these signs and symbols convey essential information to enable safe and successful travel from one location to another. The mastery of any new skill does at some level involve the mastery of new languages. Now for the third filter we'll be looking at today, our memories. When we sense something that is linked to our memory, our unconscious mind alerts us. Notice this, it's important to you in some way. Most of us know that memories can be very inaccurate. Because of course, all that we remember is our own internal representation of the experience or event. It's very common for people attending the same event at the same time to have totally different recollections. In fact, this can be the source of many arguments at family gatherings. This happened. No, 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 it was like this. Certainly at my family anyway. Studying memories of events has generated a great deal of research in relation to eyewitness testimony in courts. Ironically, although eyewitness testimonies appear to hold great sway with jurors, there is a considerable amount of evidence that they're often inaccurate and unreliable. In fact, according to the book Convicting the Innocent, written by Brandon Garrett, who is currently a professor in law at Duke University, faulty eyewitness testimony was implicated in at least 75% of DNA exoneration cases more than any other cause. The subjectivity of our memories cannot be underestimated. Yet despite this, there is no doubt that memories play a critical part in determining what information is filtered in and what is not. Whether it be an experience of deja vu, feeling as though you've heard or seen something before, all the way through to the difficult and challenging work with people who have trauma-related health problems, The memories of our past subjective experiences constantly shape, highlight and influence which 130 bits of information we process, delete, distort or generalise in the present. 
Much of the work of psychologists, psychiatrists and counsellors today involves sifting through memories and assisting clients to create new interpretations, make sense of and or dissociate from the past. In fact, some psychologists believe that as adults, we're mostly just responding to gestalts, which are sets of memories that are organised or connected in some way, that have been triggered by something in our present environment. As we live our lives, we're constantly deleting, distorting and generalising vast amounts of information. Sometimes I do wonder how different each day would be if in those sliding door moments of life, I had noticed something different. Well, we've covered a lot of content today as we began exploring the seven unconscious filters that are very active in selecting what we delete, distort and generalise as we take in our sensory data and form the internal representation which forms our map of reality. I hope you will reflect on how your filters are working. What are you focused on? And perhaps ask yourself, How's that working for me right now? Make sure you jump into the next NLP Matters episode where we continue our journey of discovery into the fascinating subject of the unconscious filters that are so important in determining our lived experience of reality. In the next episode, we'll explore the remaining four filters. Decisions, metaprograms, values and beliefs, and finally, attitudes. Stay awesome, and I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. Wow, thanks for showing up and listening in. We would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts, ideas, or questions via email to joanne at destinypursuit.com.au. Now it's time to take today's recipe out into your own life. Notice the differences that show up as you apply it. We'd love to hear how you are progressing with your new approach.